1: It's hard to think of a comedian with more drive, ambition, and energy than my guest on this week's show.
0: Can I trust you, Brooklyn? Can I really trust you? All right. Hear me up, fine. I'll say it. I know everybody likes Starbucks, but I hate the fact that they have a drink called chai tea. Chai is tea. Want some non bread? Fuck you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was a clip of Hasan Minhaj from his new Netflix special, The King's Jester. It's been five long years since Hasan released his first hour on Netflix, and today, as you are listening to this, his follow-up has finally arrived. And I have to tell you, I got a chance to see it a couple of weeks ago and was really blown away. As many of you probably know, Hassan got his start as a correspondent on The Daily Show, first under Jon Stewart and then Trevor Noah, before leaving in 2018 to launch his own show, Patriot Act, also on Netflix. His decision to focus that first episode on the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia set off a wild chain of events that he opens up about both on stage in his new special and with me in this episode. It is a story that is almost too crazy to be believed, except that it all played out on screen and across social media. I should point out that Hastin and I talked right before Trevor Noah made his surprise announcement that he will be leaving The Daily Show after seven years as host. So we don't get into the future of that show, but I did ask him whether he was ever considered for that gig and was pretty surprised by his answer. All right, there is so much compelling stuff in this conversation, so let's not waste any more time. Here's me with Hassan Minhaj. Yeah, this is a long time coming. I feel like we, we've talked a, a couple times over the years uh, for pieces on the Daily Beast, and this is your first time on the, on the Last Laugh podcast. So yeah, it's a big day. Big day for me and a big day for you. Uh, your special is coming out.
0: I'm actually such a fan because there's very few um, sort of uh, podcasts that are actually so solely dedicated to the art form of stand-up comedy, like as a a genre, and it's purely just for like the analysis and appreciation of that. Sports has that, film has that, but like stand-up's one of those things where it always doesn't get that like...
1: Yeah, it doesn't doesn't get the respect it deserves.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I guess because it's like you know we're we're uh, we're definitely lower on the tier tier of uh, the low one of the lowest on the tiers of uh entertainment.
1: Well, as I said, this is a, a big day uh, for you. As people are hearing this, is the day that your special drops, your new special, King's Jester on Netflix. Um, so yeah, how are how are you feeling? Because this has been in the works for for quite a while.
0: Yeah, I've been, I've been writing it for several years now and um, was just continuing to iterate it and, and flush it out and, and really refine the themes. And, um, was, you know, it's been five years since Homecoming King. And one of the things I was thinking about while I was talking about it with my director, Prashant, um, Venkharam he was just telling me, for him as the director and for both of us as fans of comedy, I definitely look at specials and I listen to albums with the, with the same feeling of kind of going, hey, I, I can't wait to hear what this person has to say. And, I, and you certainly hope that um, they've, there's a, they kind of have a new worldview or a new take on the world. And you just feel like there's a progression in the albums. I've always loved following bands or musicians that way as well. Yeah, you, totally. Oh, I can so track kind of you know what's happening um, with not only their sound, but you can even feel what... What, what's happening in their life with the stakes, and so um, well, that's
1: certainly true for this one. I mean, so much has happened in your life in these past five years, and a lot of it is in the special. Um, you know, I feel like your homecoming king was sort of your big, your first big hour, and it was a lot about your childhood and and growing up and stuff like that. And so, how did you conceive of what you wanted this one to be to be about?
0: So, yeah, for me, it's funny when I think I look back on homecoming king, I I really think of it as, as this piece of work, not only in my career, but I think in in popular culture, I think the reason why it resonated with folks is it kind of served as a, this introduction to the country and the world at large of what this idea of New Brown America is and was. Like, it really was a story of a first-generation kid, in my life, talking about a lot of the themes that affect uh, first-generation kids that are the bridge between these two worlds, between their parents that arrived as immigrants with visas, that had hope, that had this desire to assimilate, and this new generation that was trying to establish some level of authentic agency over their own life and trying to resolve those two. Popping out of your mom is like real estate. It's all about location, location, location. I popped out here. Like, anybody brown, we popped out here. We made it. We're the rappers that made it. What's wild is I never even knew how the whole X Men origin story went down. I, like, it, it's crazy because we know nothing about our parents, and our parents know nothing about us. Like you'd be like, Dad, what's your favorite color? Stanford. You're like, What? No.
1: Like, <laughs> no like,
0: I want to know more about you. Why do you want to know about me? Get into Stanford. You're like, Ah. Oh. And I think I think it's just that like immigrants love secrets. Right? Like they love them. They love bottling them up deep down inside of themselves and then just unleashing them on you 30 years later when it's no longer relevant. So you'll be sitting there like, what? Mom's a ninja, dad's a communist? Why are you telling me this right now? I feel like every conversation with my dad is like an M-night Shyamalan movie where it's just 90 minutes of buildup to no payoff. And I'm like So that was really kind of like an introduction of myself to the world. This really, I think, for me was just an interrogation of why do I believe what I believe? So if Hong King was, Hey, this is who I am. This is what it means to be Desi Muslim in America. This is what Lokya Kanga means. This is what Hindus are. This is what Muslims are. This is why my marriage was like this. It was all, it was a lot of kind of introduction to those things. This to me was more of an analysis of like the ontological belief of why I believe what I believe and Why do I tell the jokes that I tell? And I really, you know, worked with PV to peel back those layers and dig deeper, dig deeper, deeper, dig deeper. And um yeah, it took quite a few years. And and as we continue to refine it and work on it in these small black box theaters and these small secret shows, I, he really helped me find these threads and 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 kind of bring it home.
1: Yeah. So you you open the special by revealing a, a secret of sorts about your about yourself. Um and I, I feel like I have to tell you um I have some DOs in my life who I'm close to, and oh, yeah. uh, so uh, I, f- I feel like I could have warned you about the uh, the backlash that was coming your way after uh, after what happened. Um, maybe for anyone who doesn't know, can you explain uh, what what happened uh, on on Jimmy Fallon show and why you decided to double down in this special, which I couldn't quite believe.
0: Sure, sure. So uh, for those of you that aren't into niche physician jokes specifically <laughs> in America um, that aren't obsessed with. Um, medical school hierarchy, um, DOs are doctors of osteopathic medicine. Um, when a lot of young ambitious pre-med students, uh, uh, pursue medicine perhaps for the financial security or to help others, I think it's more of the former than the latter, but that's just me based on the number of physicians that I know. Um, sometimes we try to get into what's called an American medical school, which is, uh, you know, you get an MD, uh, and in the event that you can't, uh, they have a thing called uh, DO school, which is similar to an MD. They are. I just want to let the let people know they're both good doctors. I've been. Them in fact, and in fact, I actually don't even care if you're wearing scrubs. I'll let you operate on. Me. That's how that <laughs> in the United States. I, I I could. I'll let a chiropractor do my. Physical. I, I, I could <laughs>
1: Well, and you did uh, trust trust uh, some of your you know most important uh, medical issues to to a DO, as we learned.
0: But Matt, actually, I, actually, what, what I the, I'll actually tell you why I, I felt like doubling down. So on on um, on Jimmy Fallon, I did a I did kind of like a throwaway joke about DOs and then the the kind of the uh, Diet Pepsi doctors the same <laughs> way I kind of Diet Pepsi to John Oliver's full calorie Pepsi. Kind of just like a throwaway joke. Um, Took the piss out of myself, kind of took the piss out of them. He's not even an MD. Jimmy, he's a DO. I'm like, this guy. What is it? Can't even afford all the good letters. Oh, you don't know this. No, what's a DO? There's a war going on in the medical community, guys, between MDs and DOs. I don't know DO. No, no, no. Okay, so it's like, they're basically the same, but they're totally not. Like, an MD (laughs) is Coca-Cola and a DO is RC-Cola. You understand? (laughs) It's like an off-brand doctor. Doctors of osteopathic medicine, I did, not, I did not know. And I do get it now. They take the pain of having to go to medical school for over a decade very seriously.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, there, was, there was quite a stir in the DO community about it. But what's interesting about the reason why I included it again in the special is when we talk about in the special, me figuring out my line. Why do I tell the jokes that I tell? What's really interesting about the Dio thing that I found to be interesting about comedy in particular is who is worthy of ridicule? And the philosophical question I'm trying to raise is, hey, if you own your own private practice and drive two Teslas, are you worthy of ridicule?
1: <laughs> yeah, you don't feel like you're punching down to Dio's.
0: Sure. And, and, and then if, if, if I really, when you really want to actually hit the thing on, on if you really want to get in there is I I kind of, even on tour, I'd go, hey, Dio's, who would you rather have me make fun of? NPs, (laughs) nurses, or God forbid, chiropractors. And all of a sudden, it would turn into full-on medical class warfare. (laughs) Practitioners, chiropractors, nurses, be like, yes! I mean, it was les miserables. It was this (laughs) full-on function of just like, for years, we have been breaking our backs, serving you, you know? And all of a sudden, it, it quickly turned into what, 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 I, what I think is actually quite a, an interesting like, point, which is, hey, even if you look at the small vertical that you're in, there's a hierarchy within that. You don't acknowledge that. You too are no different than the thin-skinned dictators that I make fun of in this special as well you know no, it makes yeah it makes like, sense choosing, choosing something as innocuous as you know mm-hmm.
1: or that you thought was innocuous <laughs> for medical yeah. degree yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah
1: but yeah so i mean let's let's get into sort of that that piece of it the real the real punching up that you've done um you know we haven't talked uh, since your netflix show ended um patriot act so i want to talk a little bit about that which you get into in the special as well um you know this was patriot act was part of this wave of uh daily show alums getting their own shows i, I was curious when that was all happening were you ever um considered or or up for replacing John Stewart on the on the daily show? I don't think I was
0: on the list. Yeah, I don't think I was on the list. Surprising. Yeah. I know. It was something that um I I I would have always wanted to and it's one of those where you you're like, "Oh man, if only." You hear about these stories about Jay Leno and Late Night Wars being <laughs> on these lists and uh no, I I don't think I was I was on the list, uh, but I think as As corny as it sounds, destiny has a way of working itself out, and I think I'm sincere in my efforts and what I was trying to do and and things lined up I think the way they were supposed to line up at least that yeah,
1: the I mean, you went off and did this this other show, you got your own show on Netflix, and it was really different in a lot of ways from what you probably would have been doing if you had you know stayed at the Daily show um It does feel like it was the rare streaming quote unquote late night show that really did. Influence culture and connect with people in a way that I think has been a struggle for a lot of these shows. Um, did you feel that at the time? Did you feel like it was, um, you know, connecting, having an impact um, when you were making it?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I'll I'll be candid with you, Matt. There were so many pitches and ideas that I had that could never fit in a seven and a half minute act two desk chat, right, on the Daily Show, or that could be fit into a four and a half or five minute field piece on the Daily Show, and I felt like. Um, the, the daily shows, what they were servicing and what they are servicing is distilling the the days domestic and at times world events into a pretty concise, either seven and a half to 15 minute kind of recap. And I think, I think the utility of that, the comedic utility of that is, is pretty great. Um, but to me, when I got the opportunity to be at Netflix, I was like, wow, I mean, we have the opportunity to speak to one hundred and fifty plus countries. And there is this huge white space of all these topics that have informed my world and my worldview. And growing up in the states, a lot of times I feel like our news media has a particular myopic worldview. It's um, you know relatively ethnocentric. it's it's u s first. And my vantage point, I thought was a little bit interesting, where I, I'm I'm an American citizen, for sure, for sure, but then I'm also, you know, reading about Indian elections, cricket corruption, FIFA, the World Cup in Qatar, like Middle Eastern politics, all of these sort of things that are, you know the the war on terror, the United States' is complicit nature in multiple different wars. So my vantage point of uh, what it means to have an American political satirical identity was a little bit different. And I knew as soon as I got the opportunity, I was like, this is a space I could go into. Like immediately, there was all these topics. I'm like, I would love to dive into affirmative action, Saudi Arabia, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in Brazil, like things that my family members actually talk about on WhatsApp of like, we're, we're talking to each other and having a lot of really serious discourse about, I mean political discourse on WhatsApp is nuts. And so yeah. that, that, that WhatsApp conversation to the mainstream, that to me was just a dream come true.
1: Yeah. I mean, it feels like as we're talking, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, the protests going on in Iran is something that you would have covered that is not getting really any attention at all on in late in the late night TV space, at
0: least. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think Matt, you, you understand this working in media and, and, uh, you know, coming from The Daily Show and Patriot Act, we're this kind of comedy media adjacent thing. But we dress up like members of the media. We kind of we kind of cosplay as members of the media. But so much of media is about framing and it's about, you know, the meta narrative. And it's important that one of the things that I realized is perhaps the reason why it's not being discussed on Late Night right now is there's a lot of people in American news media that go, I don't know how to frame this. But to me, there is a connective tissue to, again, in in, in my uh, American upbringing, I'm able to connect those two ideas. Uh, like, no, best believe there is a version of the American Taliban that, isn't, that has an unflinching, unwavering, um, almost ancient theocratic perspective on law and jurisprudence and execution of law. And I see the similarity between these two, even though they're thousands and thousands of miles away. So the draconian laws that are being levied against women to not have agency over their bodies are under the guise of religious law is quite similar to that as well.
1: Yeah. And I um, think also, yeah, the lack of, of women in, in late night TV right now is also a problem for that same reason that I think, you know, I would think someone like Samantha Bee would be maybe making that uh, connection if her show was still around. Sure. Sure, for sure. Did you? I mean, obviously, you had a you had a, a nice run on Patriot Act, but it was, I'm sure, not as long as you would have. Dude, I'm, surpri-
0: I'm surprised we lasted as long as we did. Yeah, uh, uh,
1: I think you did about 40 episodes or something like that. Um, do you do you feel like the? I don't know if Netflix gave you a reason why the show was canceled. I I don't know. Is, do you feel like there was a connection to the? Everything that went down with the Saudi Arabia episode, because that was your first episode, which is yeah, crazy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, And there was a long gap in between. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, you
0: know, it's so, it's so funny, man. The fans, it's it's really beautiful. They have these wild conspiracy theories where they're like, it was the Saudis. No, it was like you know, it was uh, it, it was him calling them out for not paying corporate taxes. Or <laughs> they have this you know, whole. Like,
1: it was just basic uh, commerce and. Yeah. And, no, uh, I
0: think really what it was, Ted. I, I got to give Ted, Bella, and Brandon Reed at Netflix a lot of credit. They were super transparent and and really nice and really kind and sincere in in, in places where a lot of networks aren't or don't have to be. Um, it's very transactional. They weren't. They were super transparent and and proud of the show. And, you know, candidly, they were like, look, most shows don't go beyond six seasons. So even though episodes were getting you know, several million views per week and the YouTube numbers were doing great, both on platform and on YouTube, you, you did notice we were you know, kind of plateauing around like the two, three, sometimes four, two, three million views per episode, either on digital or on, or on platform. And one of the things that they're always looking for is growth. Hey, where, how can we add people to the mix? They're so, not
1: maybe in the business of that long term, like we're gonna have this show on for twenty years. Sure.
0: But what was cool, what was cool is one thing that they did say is when the show ended, immediately they were like, Do you have any other ideas? <laughs> like like they were hey,
1: still God. in the they were still in the Hasan business.
0: Yeah, totally. So you know, and I remember telling um telling them I go, it takes a long time to come up with an idea. I'm I'm not as quick as <laughs> algorithm i i don't know if i can 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 feed the the algorithm as quickly as
1: but they as got your possible. they got your special so there's that
0: yeah yeah so i think i think it all um it all ended well and i give him credit you know for letting me put full episodes up on youtube as well that was pretty unprecedented and ted and i had a really long conversation and he was like okay you know both ted and bella were like this is important to you we're going to do it and so I, I'm always appreciative of, of those relationships where someone has leverage and the right to say no. They actually, in good faith, hear what you have to say. And they're like, okay, let's do it. Um, and I, I, it, it allowed the show to go to places in the world where sometimes people can't afford Netflix. You know, YouTube is this very egalitarian thing that no matter where I travel in the world, India, Bangladesh, you know, you go to parts of Europe, like everybody is on a mobile device watching YouTube. And so I thought that was really cool for them to allow um, me to share the show that way.
1: Coming up, Hassan reveals the moment he realized he may have taken his comedic pursuit of dictators too far, and how close he came to walking away from comedy altogether. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other Daily Show alums like Larry Wilmore, Samantha Bee, Jordan Klepper, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Hassan Minhaj. Let's talk a little bit about the the Saudi Arabia stuff because it is such a big part of the special. You know, as I said, I I couldn't believe that looking back that it was, you know, your first episode out of the gate, basically, or one of the first two. And you also reveal in the special for the first time that you actually were trying to interview the crown prince. I couldn't figure out, was that for... Patriot Act that was going to be part of that episode or or how did you think about that
0: Yeah we were trying to do it and I w- I was trying to shoot a, pr- a interview with the Crown Prince while he was doing what was called the charm offensive he was doing kind of a media campaign where he met with like The Rock and he met with Michael Bloomberg at Starbucks and met, met with you know Ari Emanuel and WME and it was this whole thing like I'm going to go um in and, and I'm going to do this big kind of the crown prince has arrived in America tour. And I thought this could be the moment where, Hey, like you can meet with Bloomberg and Starbucks. Hey, like I'll, I'll meet you a coffee bean. Like, let's let, let me shoot my shot. And um, I felt like, again, there's a perspective that I would have that perhaps Dwayne, The Rock Johnson does not have I would make that interview Interesting. So to how say. do you
1: think you would have approached it? I mean, what would you have been? What would have been your goals in in talking with him? I know it almost happened, but then, but then didn't.
0: Sure. I. I, I mean, I think there's certainly the the there is a dual energy that Muslims around the world feel when it comes to their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, on on one hand, they are the custodians of one of the holiest sites in our faith. Mecca and Medina are in Saudi Arabia, and it is, you know, the duty of every practicing Muslim to try to make their pilgrimage there. It's a, it's a very sacred place in our hearts um, and in our faith. And at the same time, there is this quite contentious relationship with the Gulf states vis-a-vis the proxy wars they've had with Yemen and some of the political alliances they've had. Um, and so my identity both as a Muslim and as American is very complicated with the Saudis. And America's relationship is very complicated with the Saudis, which, you know, America will always say we, we will fight and support the dem, quote-unquote democracy around the world. And then every couple of years, every president <laughs> will go sword dancing with the Saudis and go full Prince Ali Ababa to lower the gas prices and sell some arms. So those would be my comedic take that I would have brought. Just a few months ago, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, AKA MBS, was hailed as the reformer the Arab world needed. But the revelations about Khashoggi's killing have shattered that image. And it blows my mind that it took the killing of a Washington Post journalist for everyone to go, oh, I guess he's really not a reformer. Meanwhile, every Muslim person you know was like, yeah, no shit. He's the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia.
1: How do you feel about the episode that episode now um you know a few years later um it's the one obviously that then got taken down uh, from Netflix in Saudi Arabia and there's a lot of sort of controversy and discussion around that is there anything you would do differently or do you feel like you you stand by everything in that episode or how do you think about it
0: No I'm super proud of what we said and one of the things I touched in the special though is I'm not proud of the means by which I went about it and some of the like kind of the haughtiness and the ego that I had to just bum rush an embassy and put, and put myself and loved ones in danger. And the, the kind of the drunken high and stupor that I had to try to get that great joke, that shit isn't funny, man. You could get a lot of people hurt. You know, funny, funny enough, I'll tell you a story, even after it happened, and the episode got taken down and, you know, my Hajj visa was denied. I had this idea where in Islam, if you can't make your pilgrimage, somebody can make it on your behalf. But there's this, so God has created this little loophole. <laughs> so I said, how can we make a sketch out of this? I, th- I feel like this would be kind of the ultimate long con. So I called Nathan Fielder and I go, Nick, <laughs> have you ever considered Islam? I know you love reporting from the field. What if you converted to Islam? You know, I got an imam down here, you converted, you accepted the faith, both, you know, you know, Muslims and Jews, we are, we are cousins, we both come from Abraham, we are pretty linked in, in law, we can marry one another, like, let's, let's just do this, you go down, you make your pilgrimage on my behalf, we come back, and, you know, maybe we go on CBS Sunday morning, we let the Saudis know, hey, like, (laughs) no autocratic power can inhibit my connection to God. And I remember... Nate said something that was so chilling now that I think about it. He goes, Could this get me hurt? And he meant, and Matt, he meant it sincerely.
1: Like physically hurt or?
0: Uh... Yeah, would this, would this get me hurt? Would they kill me? And he meant it. He's like, Dude, I don't know. I'm, he goes, I think the idea is brilliant. I think it's so funny.
1: Yeah, he's a pretty daring guy in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. But,
0: but, but this, is, this isn't, I'm going to create a, a restaurant called Dumb Starbucks. This is, I'm going to fly. To Saudi Arabia and, do, and pull this off with cameras, like there is a delta of danger here that a lot of Americans don't know. Safety is assumed in the states.
1: Yeah, you found you found Nathan Fielder's line.
0: Yeah, yeah, but but I also was like, now that I think back on it, the fact that I was willing to like put that on paper in a pitch sheet, call him, try to get a crew. Man, I'm so glad we didn't go through with it. But it's also I'm kind of ashamed at myself that to pursue comedy and to pursue a bit i'd put another I'd be willing to put myself and another person's life in danger that's not cool, man, and I think that's something that I explore in in uh, the show as well
1: i mean that that's really the heart of the the special in a lot of ways is the fallout from your pursuit of of dictators and how it how it affected your own personal life i mean the The irony of the whole thing is that this episode that got You know, taken down in in Saudi Arabia brought you more fame, more attention, more social media clout than anything else that you've ever done. And
0: and Matt, real talk, man. The the thing, the ugly thing that I wrote down, I remember I was, while we were just flushing out the story, and I just wrote this on like a sheet of paper is I go, I did the right thing for the wrong reasons. And Time 100 and Blue Check Twitter doesn't know that, but Bina knows that and I know that. And one of the things in my belief system is, checking your intention intention is like really big in islam and i'm like yeah my intention wasn't in the right place i had spent all these years at the daily show you know when something is going to connect i had enough experience as a comic to be like i know what this is going to do and that's fine you sh- you can do that but you also need to be for me i want to be like really pure in that intention and like hey man i would do this whether or not there are cameras here or not and that's why i included that line in the special that Bina did say to me, she goes, I love how you only care about these issues when there's a camera on you. (laughs) And I was like, I know, right? And, you know, I'm saying it in that like Smeagol voice of like, I know. And (laughs) it's a very ugly thing. Like, it's not a thing I'm proud of, but um, yeah, it was a theme that I wanted to explore. And it started with that question. Can you do the right thing for the wrong reasons? Don't judge me, Brooklyn. (laughs) You're just like me. Yeah, I've been watching you all night. You're fucking tweaking without your phones. (laughs) I like the phones. I'm talking to you right now. He can't even record this moment. Did it even happen? (laughs) You have to remember it in your mind like a fucking loser? (laughs) What's the most amount of likes you've ever gotten on a photo? 86? 86? If I only got 86 likes on a photo, I would kill myself.
1: Do you feel like you have gotten to that point where you can separate yourself from the, you know, the reward system of social media and and all of that?
0: The test of it for me is I had this line that we removed from this special, but is I'm, the, I'm trying to close the gap between who I am on Instagram and who I am on iMessage. <laughs> and best believe there's, there's Twitter, Matt Wilstein, and then there's iMessage, Matt Wilstein. There's Twitter, Amanda Gorman, and there's iMessage, Amanda Gorman. <laughs> there's Twitter, Malala, and there's iMessage slash WhatsApp, Malala. And those are two different people. You're lying to me if, if, you, if, if you don't admit that, because I know that's true with me. And if I'm going to be honest and pursue this thing called being an artist and devote my life to it, I got to give you iMessage me. And that's the first thing. So, and what I mean by iMessage is there's a level of assumed until the bubble, the cloud bursts. There's a level of assumed privacy. There's a level of, hey, this is kind of who I really am. Can I just tell you this for real, for real? iMessage means for real, for real. Like, I'm going to tell you this for real, for real. Um, what did you really think of, you know, Olivia Wilde's movie? Like for real, <laughs> that's the I message thing, right? That to me is true honesty. That is who you are. And that's what I'm pursuing. The second part of it is what Bina said, is if you really believe this, you would do it whether or not people can see or not. And there's the ancient saying that that is why you give with one hand so the other hand doesn't know. That's, that's like, hey, you don't do good things to signal them. You do them because you truly are that. The third is, and this isn't talked about enough, there's so much, I think, social signaling and shaming of who a good person and bad person is. But to me, man, the only people that get to to really determine that are Bina, Najmi Minhaj, Seema Minhaj, Aisha Minhaj, my two kids. Those are the people that know. And so I also now, as a comedian, have to check that against them because- that's how I determine whether or not I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the spirit of, of, you know, being honest about this public and private stuff. I mean, one thing that I'm sure you're aware of around Patriot Act is there were some staffers who, you know, spoke out about a toxic work environment and um, you know, it was a lot of women of color. Um, and I do want to give you the the space to respond to that. Cause I, I haven't heard you you know talk about that anywhere. Um and it kind of is it falls in line with this with this conversation that we're having,
0: totally. Um, so a couple of the staffers had a um, did not have a good experience with a couple of their coworkers in their department. It was specifically in regards to the tone, posture, and demeanor that those folks in their department had. Um, and if you remember during that period of time, Several newsrooms were having these conversations.
1: Yeah, it was a big wow. moment of, of reckoning.
0: Totally, totally. Whether from the New York Times to the Washington Post to BuzzFeed. And there were people that felt, hey, I'm not being heard. My pitches aren't being heard. Why are these ideas being heard over mine? And one of the things that I really learned as a leader, I had to step back and go, oh man, like, I really wish people. In those teams would have gotten along. And the thing I have to own as a leader is whether or not you're in those rooms, you have to set a, a, a precedent or an agenda to go, hey, the way I'm carrying myself, everybody's got to carry themselves that way, too. You know? And that's the thing I've reflected on, too, as, as I've gotten into other projects and now been on other sets is going, how can I ensure that everybody feels heard um, even when I'm not there? You know? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, going back to you know the, what we were talking about with um, with the, the special and, and sort of doing the the right thing for the wrong reasons, that culminated. And you mentioned the time one hundred in this um, oh, yes. very intense moment that you also include in the special, where you call out uh, Jared Kushner to his face, basically.
0: There are people on the front lines that cannot be here, uh, like Lujan Al Hotal who is a Saudi activist who helped fight to lift the women's driving ban. And she is currently in prison. She cannot be with us here tonight. She's been tortured. And a lot of times as comedians, we get a lot of credit. People come up to us and they go, thank you so much for pointing a light on that issue. But that's all we're doing, we're pointing. And I just wanna say thank you to Lujan for being the light. Um, this This is a very powerful room. And you know, I know there's a lot of very powerful people here, and it'd be crazy if, I don't know, if there was just like a, I don't know, like if there was like a high-ranking official in the White House that could WhatsApp MBS and, and say, hey, maybe you could help that person get out of prison, because they don't deserve it. But that'd be crazy. That'd be, I mean, that person would have to be in the room, but it's just a good comedy premise. <laughs> It was crazy, man, because that scene is really the, the the like the it was the it's the perfect push and pull of comedian me, which is obsessed with, oh, man, this is the bit. This is so funny. And, you know, this, Matt, a great joke reveals something new that you didn't know or it makes you, oh, like there's this misdirect in it of like, oh, shit, I can't believe you connected the dots this way. So I was one of the few people in that room as he is like sitting in Jane's symbolic chair. I'm like, oh my, the triangulation of this joke is incredible that people in the audience don't know that Crown Prince and Kushner are these WhatsApp text buddies.
1: Yeah, it wasn't as much of a known thing at that point.
0: Yeah, it was, again, like, sure, Ian Bremmer and policy wants to know, but like, you know again, Dwayne, the rock Johnson was like, he doesn't know. So it was one of those things where my eyes just kind of lit up of like, Oh man, like, um, this is the moment. Like, this is the moment where I could say this joke. And I remember kind of being a looking at me being like, don't do this. I I can see, I can see the raccoon on Adderall. I can see your eyes lighting up. Don't do this. This is please, like, can we just sit next to Taylor Swift and eat our lukewarm salmon? <laughs> just give a toast to the fans or whatever. And 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 just say, you know, I'm praying for world peace or whatever and just sit back down. And I remember I was, I bombed. It was really bad. And I just heard one loud cackle in the back of the room. Someone was banging on their table and it was John Oliver.
1: <laughs> well, that must've felt good.
0: Yeah, so I was like, all right, all right, well... Oliver thinks
1: John story. liked it. Yeah, yeah, John
0: liked, it. but I but I bombed in the room. It was, it was
1: bad. You know, after the the Time 100 thing and and all of that, kind of leads up to some pretty scary consequences for you and your family, um, because of all this stuff that you're, we're talking about, um, and you talk about that in this very emotional way in the special. Was there a was there a breaking point for you on this stuff where you really had to reexamine um what you were doing?
0: Yeah, I think when you know my my family received that package and I don't know who sent it. Um, and I was with my daughter. Um, that was just a sobering wake up call of, yeah.
1: Yeah. You it, know, was a, it was it uh, was an envelope with some
0: powder, in it. white yeah.
1: powder in it that fortunately did not turn out to be anything.
0: Yeah. yeah. So someone was, you know, trying to scare me or scare us and uh, it worked and it was really terrifying. And one of the things that, um, you know, if people ever came to the show, you'll notice there was a period of time for months where we didn't have uh, security in the front. And then for months, <laughs> all of a sudden there was a couple security people there.
1: That's um, what changed.
0: Yeah. And that, that, people always like, is Hustle like a rapper? Like why, why are there security? <laughs> people? You know what I mean? Like he, yeah. did, he, yeah, did he put out a diss track about bad boy records and it's was like someone trying to retaliate or something. Um, but yeah, it, it, was a, it was a sobering kind of wake up call of going, you know what, there really is this thing where people talk about, oh, comedians need to push the envelope. But I, I remember in that moment, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, sometimes the envelope pushes back. Like there are consequences for what you say and do. And if it hurts the people that count on you the most and someone who is um, so innocent, like my daughter, I, I really got to re- reevaluate and examine what I'm doing here.
1: Did you ever consider quitting comedy altogether or really changing the type of comedy that you do?
0: Certainly the latter. It was how do I engage in this thing that requires that? Because comedy as an art form inherently needs to be cutting, irreverent. Um, It by design is poking at something. So then I had to ask like, okay, so who am I poking? What am I poking? And I think This not only applies to me, but it applies to, I think, the art form itself is. As comedians, we have to figure out what the Overton window of what is appropriate discourse when it comes to jokes. For Me, rather than applying that to other people, the show's really about, hey, me applying it to myself. And the conclusion I came to is I'm willing to take the joke as far as I possibly can. Like, best believe I'm I'm going to swing up until the point that I believe in my heart this is going to hurt loved ones and family members. Sorry.
1: I opt out. Yeah. And before maybe you, you, would, you would have done it anyway or you would you just- it would, it, dream. Dream.
0: it would have been a dream, man. I would have gone full international Desi espionage Borat. Put me in the <laughs> way, Let me run into embassy. I'll do, I'll do whatever it takes. And you know it's crazy, man. I'm 37 and I, and I started doing comedy when I was 18. I got hired to join The Daily Show when I was 30. But I'm sure you've talked to so many comics between 18 and 30, that window was so dark. You are so desperate for health insurance and security in any capacity. The only thing that gives you wind in your sails is that next joke and what it does, whether it's show business or the need because of comedy, you're willing to do anything to, to get that big laugh. And, um, there is more to my life than comedy, man. Like it just is that way. Now that I'm, I'm here, I I got an amazing wife and two beautiful kids. It's like, and I, again, luck, I'm lucky that both my parents are still alive too. Yeah, I, I can't sacrifice that for
1: a great bit. Um, I want to make sure we get to talk, you know, some about the earlier part of your career and those those early years that you're talking about. Um, and I think we can get to it in this uh, final segment, the first laugh. Um, so I'm going to ask you about some firsts. Uh, going all the way back, uh, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up or one of the first that you remember?
0: Probably one of the first things that, made me laugh really hard was watching my dad watch Mr. Bean. (laughs) What it is about dads and Mr. Bean. He loved Mr. Bean. I think it's this unique thing of like...
1: You weren't laughing at Mr. Bean. You were laughing at at
0: Mr. Bean. I was laughing at my dad laughing at Mr. Bean. Um, Who, by the way, you know, Ron Atkinson, legend. Ronnie Chang feels otherwise, but (laughs) that was probably one of the first times I laughed. And then, you know, uh, like like a lot of kids from our generation, I personally wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons at home. I'd go to friends' houses to watch it. Um, and, uh, you know, seasons three, four, five of The Simpsons, man, I just remember being like, my God, like this is so funny, so funny. I think people think that's the golden age, right? It's like somewhere like seasons three through seven or something.
1: Yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. I always ask about the first time comedians knew they were funny. Um, you happened to tell that story in the special. Um, about uh, about the time that you almost got arrested, um, yeah, yeah. so so maybe you can tell uh, a short a short version of that. The first time that you knew you were funny.
0: All right. So I grew up in Northern California, um, kind of uh, in the early two thousands, um, and shortly after nine eleven, you know, the United States had had something called the Patriot Act, which allowed the FBI to kind of legally spy on on the Muslim community. My dad happened to be the president of the mosque, uh, the Muslim Mosque Association in Sacramento. Um, one of the oldest mosques in America, west of the Mississippi, by the way. So it's it's a it's a beautiful beautiful place. Um, but we would, I you know, I would grow up and I'd play with you know the kids that I went to Sunday school with. And FBI agents would just hang out at mosques all the time. And so I tell this story, where you know the first time I kind of, you know, realized, oh, I'm funny, and I like the feeling of what of of cracking jokes is, is when. I kind of made fun of one of the kind of FBI agents that, that would hang out with us. But I remember at the time when I was a kid, yeah, there was, there was these guys, you know, a guy named Javier, but he would then, <laughs> and he'd want to hang out with 16 year olds. And I remember kind of, I, we would crack jokes and I'd be like, oh, so I guess, I, you know, Javier, I just wanted to let you know, um, you know, pedophilia is haram in Islam, right? So you, you probably shouldn't be hanging out with there. And, and, and I remember like my friends would crack up and I loved that feeling. I love the feeling of on some level, you're making fun of the teacher or you're pointing out something that is absolutely absurd. And so as weird as that sounds, that is kind of one of the first times I felt you know, funny and I felt like agency in my life in a weird way.
1: I know you've talked uh, on stage some about your daily show audition. Um, what do you remember about the very first Uh, correspondent segment or field piece that you got on the air um, what it was like to to make that and and just whatever you remember from it oh man so
0: i think it was with um it was with jordan klepper and i i believe the story was about there was (laughs) it was about pigs in cages in new jersey some like law about (laughs) it's very random yeah yeah and it's like it was like chris christie some piece of legislation uh, around like crates that pigs were in and farms in New Jersey. Should they have the right to be able to turn, should the cages be big enough so that pigs can turn around or not turn around. And so the daily show, they were, they were do they would do these segments. I don't know if you remember like Wyatt Snack and Asif Mambi would be on two different, it's team A or team B. So I was team turnaround. Um, I think Klepper was team one direction. <laughs> so like Paige should be able to turn around in a, a cage. And he was like, no, nah, like they should only be looking forward. Um, and it was this like super niche specific desk chat. Um, and I remember being like so nervous. I didn't, I didn't know if I would get laughs. And this is where I give John a lot of credit. He was such a giving performer to the correspondence. He would do these things where he would sometimes like tap the desk, or put his fist up to his mouth, like holding back laughter at like how silly and goofy we were being. And I love that he did that for me because he let the audience know, hey, I think this guy is funny.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: And that was just so really kind of him to do because he could totally be like, all right, kid, go do your thing. Yeah,
1: you could just he could just play it straight and Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And people be like, What is with this? Who is this kid who's obsessed with
1: <laughs> pigs okay, turning around?
0: Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, and like things being able to turn around and
1: yeah, in retrospect, that's probably something that John feels strongly about because he has totally, a lot of New what a, crazy, what
0: a wild, <laughs> uh, like, thing um, Tracy cares so deeply about now.
1: This is a this is a random one, but I was rewatching your White House Correspondents' Dinner speech, and uh, the guy who introduces you calls you Hassan Minaj, yes, and then you say you introduce yourself as Hassan Minaj, yeah, which is not yeah. the correct uh, pronunciation of your name, right? Um, uh, yeah. And then I think like less than a year later, you were on Ellen correcting her Yeah, yeah. for and, and trying to teach her how to say your name, which she did not get. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and, and the decision to kind of was there a time when you said, you know what, I'm not going to just uh, repeat what this mispronunciation anymore?
0: Totally. So I remember when I first started um, stand up. Um, it's 2004. I'm going to open mics and, and at last unlimited in old Sacramento. And I remember signing up to the open mic list. And, you know, what was interesting is there was like Davis High Hassan. There was UC Davis Hassan. Then The first time you go to a comedy club, I'm I'm with adults. I'm with tax paying adults, you know, and I go, hey, I'm just going to let's start fresh. So I like write my name down. Hey, it's Hasan and I remember the host was like, hey, man, you get, this isn't going to work. Yeah, this <laughs> doesn't work for me. Yeah, this isn't going to work. He goes, you know, Jamie, have you thought about having a stage name? You know, Jamie Foxx. That's not his real name. Jamie Foxx is you should think of, you should think of a, a name. And I remember I, I like went back to my car. Hassan Hassan Sean. Maybe I go by Sean. And I remember uh, I had cat scratch, just like scratch notes. I get home. I go upstairs. And- my sister sees one of like my pieces of paper where I'm writing, and she goes, "Are you going to change your name to Sean?" <laughs> she was like, "What are you doing?" And I and I I had this long conversation with her. I was like, "I know. I just got to get through the door, and once I get through the door, then it'll all make sense. And if I if I make it, then I can go back. And I remember after White House Correspondents' Dinner, I'm you know people know me now. I'm able to sell out venues. I, I kind of have somewhat of name recognition." I'm taking my parents. I'm taking my parents down to go see Ellen, and my mom takes off work. My and my dad take off work. They're both state employees. My mom works at the VA, and, and my dad uh, works at the Cal EPA in Sacramento. And I remember, um, you know, she was like Hassan, like, so good to see. You. And I just remember sitting there, and I look out, and I see my mom. I kind of see her just be like, "Who's Hassan?" <laughs> and I'm I'm sitting there on the couch in that moment, and it was this kind of like it was like Neo in the Matrix, like everything's slowing down all at once. And I was like, you made it. You're a stand-up comedian on Ellen, which is like one of the biggest daytime talk shows at the time. And and are you still gonna capitulate now? Like, are you, you made it. You You don't have to go by Jamie Foxx anymore. Like you can go by what your real name is now. And so I kind of already had a joke that I would do on stage about this. Just like, so let me get this straight. We can say Benedict Cumberbatch but you cannot say like we can literally just say leonardo dicaprio and yeah it's totally fine timothy chalamet with an accent <laughs> yeah. over the first few. like we have no problem with that and like i have to change my name so i did that whole thing that joke in that moment um yeah because it just felt like it just felt like the right thing to do at that time and
1: yeah i i think uh, she was kind of fucking with you when she uh also got it wrong again, but yeah. I tell. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, She was like, okay, all right, something's happening here.
1: Um, do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? That <laughs>
0: makes me laugh now. Okay, so <laughs> when I was doing NACA, those, which are like college gigs, when you first started doing stand-up, I remember um, I was 10 minutes into my set, and it's called A Nooner, which is like a show that you do at at 12 o'clock in the afternoon while kids are getting lunch. And maybe 10 minutes into my set, um, someone in the audience, I was bombing so bad, they go, you can stop now. And I'm like, shut <laughs> up, man. What do you, shut up, what do you know? And then the person got up and was like, I'm the, I'm the booker. I'm the booker. <laughs> You can stop now. And I remember, it was
1: like. What are you going to say to that? Yeah.
0: I, yeah, I guess I stopped. So I just like shuffled off stage. And then we're in the parking lot and he's holding the envelope with like my $800 in it. And I really needed that money. And I I had this fantasy in my head. of like, what if I just snatch this and get in the (laughs) the Miata and just run to the airport? Luckily I didn't. Um, I'm not brave enough to do that. And he eventually did send the money.
1: (laughs) He wasn't going to pay you because you weren't funny enough?
0: Yeah. I was so angry at the time. And, and, I called Michelle Buteau and Dana Dudes and Machante and I'm like, I should have, I should have snatched that envelope out of his hand. <laughs> and we're like, dude, well, it's, it's okay. Like, it's fine. Um,
1: do you have a memory about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, someone who you just really looked up to in the comedy world and what it was like to meet them for the first time?
0: Yeah. I, I opened for Daniel Tosh at the, the San Jose Improv in, um, I think 2009. And it was a huge deal. Tosh is so funny. It's it's interesting that yeah, we all I don't think
1: Tosh. he gets a lot of uh, respect.
0: Yeah, he it, it's funny that like uh, you know, we you hear the names of the greats, the, the Bill Burrs, the Chris Rocks, the Chappelle's, the Giraldos, Patricio, uh they're all fantastic, but he's so whip smart and clever and quick and his ability to construct an hour was so amazing. I couldn't even I couldn't even like put words together. I was such a goober. Um, so, that was one of the first, like, kind of comedy um, heroes that I met.
1: And finally, I like to give my guests a chance to shout out uh, other comedy comedians, anything that's making them laugh right now. So, what's something that you've seen recently that really made you laugh? There's a
0: comedian, Fahim Anwar. He is so funny. He drops these little mixtapes called Stuff That I'm Working on, like Volume 5.1, 5.2. Like, he is so funny. And what I love most about him is how. Goofy and silly he is he he hes silly in such an amazing way. There's another really funny comedian, Neki Leeper. He's really funny. Um, I don't know if she needs a shout out, but I think she is so talented. I've told her this a million times taylor Taylor Tomlinson is just brilliant. I think she's so freaking talented. and uh, I want to give a shout out to Yvonne orgy Yvonne is like such a star. She is like stunning and smart and can do sketch and can act and really funny and um Nigerian culture is so similar to Indian culture so when I watch her stuff it was like cracked on it. So
1: yeah she awesome. has a new special coming I think so. 1st yeah I
0: can't wait. I can't wait. And it, it she mixes stand up with sketch which I think um is really great. Um yeah and
1: Moses Storm. Moses Storm yeah. he was on this podcast. He's yeah. great. Uh,
0: and sorry uh yeah that's it yeah
1: (laughs) Um, well I have to tell you I really really enjoyed your new special Um, it's so funny so compelling such a wild story that you have to tell and um, I think people are really going to enjoy it so thank you so much for doing this and it's been great talking with you again thanks Matt thank you so much that was great dude
0: thank you man I
1: appreciate it I appreciate you Oh man, I want to thank Hassan Minhaj again for being my guest on this week's show and sharing so much of his story with us. You can stream The King's Jester right now on Netflix, and I highly recommend that you do. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for the Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Small details
0: are big surfaces.